Hello everyone and welcome to the Remember a Charity podcast where we bring together fundraisers and friends from the sector to chat about all things related to legacies. My name is Lucinda Darby and I'm the Marketing Manager at Remember a Charity. So in this episode, our three guests and I will be exploring the topic of innovation in legacy fundraising. So keep listening to hear our guests' views on what problems might need solving in the sector, as well as what they think the biggest areas of opportunity are for gifts and wells and how to apply that to your own charity. So on a related note, as many of you listening will know, the Legacy Futures Awards are coming up and they have very kindly asked me to be one of the judges, which I'm very flattered by. Um, and I'll be the judge for the Innovation Awards, uh, which is really exciting. The awards are open to any, or that particular award is open to any organization that's looking to innovate in the area of legacy or in memory giving and create a big impact. Applications close on the 31st of March. So do check the link in the show notes to find out more and good luck to everyone who enters. Okay, uh, moving on to our lovely guests. Shall we go around the proverbial room and introduce ourselves? Um, Ashley, can I come to you first? Hi, Lucinda. Um, I'm Ashley. I'm Ashley Rothorn. I'm the CEO of Legacy Futures. And we're a group of consultancy companies helping charities to grow their legacy in, in memory income. Uh, which includes Legacy Foresight, Legacy Link and Legacy Voice. Um, we've been working in the legacy sector for over 25 years. I know I don't look that old. I know Michael does, but I, I don't. Um, but we came together as a group in April April 2020. Um, and as, as Lucy Cinder said, um, we launched our Legacy Futures Awards last year. We're in the second year this year. Um, there are three award categories one of which is all about innovation, all about encouraging new innovative ideas in the areas of legacy giving. And we're excited to chat about that today. Great. Thank you, Ashley. Michael? Hello, uh, Lucinda. Um, I'm pleased to be uh, involved today. My name is Michael Clark. I am the head of Legacies at World Cancer Research Fund. Um, over the last 15 years, I've worked uh, here. I've worked at the Cystic Fibrosis Trust. I've worked for PDSA and uh, Age UK, and I'm um, pleased to uh, join this meeting today. Thanks, Michael. And last but not least, George. Hi, thank you for having me, Lucinda. Um, so I'm George, or otherwise known as Georgina Hyman. I'm Head of Legacies at Alzheimer's Research UK, and also co-chair of the CIOF Legacy and In-Memory Group. Great, thank you, guys. Thank you so much for joining. It's really good to see you all uh, virtually. Uh, as opposed to in person. <laughs> um, so I will be asking five questions today and I will kick off, which is uh, kick off with probably, or perhaps the easiest question. So what does innovation mean to you? Um, Ashley, I'm gonna pick on you first. Yeah, thanks Lucinda. I was kind of thinking about this and I was thinking, well, what does kind of innovation look like and what has it looked like in the in the legacy given sector specifically? and like thinking, well, if, if we go back to the kind of early 90s, we saw a real, like a real major innovation. Um, that was when um, Philip Black um, was then at the Imperial Cancer Research Fund, came, came up with the idea of charities offering, to, offering support to the chance of making um, or updating their will for free. No one had ever done that at the point. Um, today, loads and loads of charities um, run free will schemes. In fact, there's a whole industry kind of based around the concept. Um, was thinking remember a charity early 2020 that was that was a major innovation that was kind of 
charities coming together, the kind of idea that actually if we work together collectively, we can grow the market and an understanding that you know, there's, there's room for several charities in a will. If we work together, we can pool our resources. We can do together what no charity can do on its own. I think for me, innovations, they kind of start with a problem. You know, it all starts what we, we need to kind of understand um, that there's a problem we're trying to solve. So if we take the concept of free wills, it was that people were saying they wanted to include a gift to, to charity, but they didn't have any plans to update their will. Or they found like the, especially at the time, if you needed to make a will, you had to use a traditional solicitor, it could be quite expensive. And it seemed it was kind of prohibitive. Mm -hmm. So there was a barrier in the way. So that innovation was like, was trying to solve, solve a problem. So for me, that's for me what it's all about. It's about understanding. We're trying to do something new, but it's to solve, it's to solve a particular problem um, or to create a new, new opportunity and maybe to do something better rather than just to do something new for the sake of doing something new. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess in terms of problem solving, things are evolving, our lives are changing. So there's always different problems arising all the time, which means there's always opportunities for, for innovation. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anyone else have any thoughts on what innovation means to them? I don't think it's necessary. I think I agree with Ashley that it is about um, solving a problem, but I think that innovation comes in all different sizes and even the small ones are about becoming more efficient and effective. So there might not have been an, like a really obvious challenge to overcome, but actually the, the innovative element is actually looking at the status quo and challenging that and saying, what are the other opportunities that can be there? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think innovation's a bit of a, it's so broad. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point, isn't it? Because you can think, you know, I was thinking about innovation being a big new idea, but actually if you had a, a continual kind of um, innovation mindset, you're kind of always looking at making those incremental improvements, actually over time, actually, you can really move things on. Yeah. Um, but just by doing, you know, doing simple things a little bit better. Yeah, I guess the word innovation in itself implies something massive and probably sounds a bit daunting, whereas actually it could be something really small that in itself actually makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. exactly. I, I think innovation, though, is it's looking at individual charities. We talk about innovation as though it's, you know, something that all of a sudden you wake up with. And, you know, <laughs> in the same way Ashley's described with Remember a Charity, which I completely agree with, you know, one of the things that we saw recently from the Institute of Legacy Management on one of their um, emails out was one of the early legacy adverts. And I think it was for the Salvation um, Army advertising for a legacy manager position. And this was a new innovative post at the time. Now, that now is something that most you know, charities of a medium or large size have got, but that was innovative mm. at the time. And as time goes on, what is innovation is, is just moving on. But I think it's, it's really looking at, from a marketing perspective, as how we look at um, attracting different ways of attracting the audience that our individual charity needs to attract in order to maximise our potential for, for legacy income in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think in terms of the, I think what um, what you were referring to was that advert, was it from like the 60s or earlier than that? Something like that. And it was interesting that at the time, 
they wanted someone in their 40s or 50s they were specific about the age range I imagine at the time that's because they thought that they would be in the best position to speak to the supporters. older donors I, I wish they'd advertise it now Lucinda because I'd apply I was gonna say <laughs> didn't you apply for it at the no, time I, I didn't at the time because I wasn't even a thought in my mother's eye but now I'd be going for that gung-ho <laughs> yeah that's a shame <laughs> Um, thank you guys that's really interesting um so moving on to the next question so thinking more specific more specifically around particular areas of legacy fundraising are there yeah are there particular areas of legacy fundraising that you think need innovation the most are there specific problems that you think need solving or or to michael's point are there perhaps new audiences that we need to reach that that we might not be thinking about um, so uh, who am I going to pick on? I will pick on George. <laughs> I had a feeling that was coming to me. Um, so I've got quite a, I don't know, I don't think this necessarily go down so well, but I think one of the challenges that we face is the separation between legacy administration and legacy marketing. Yeah. And the, for me, it's about recognizing that our legacy administrators are speaking to an incredibly warm audience and solicitors and actually the the challenges that I've seen now firsthand managing a legacy admin as well as a legacy marketing team are quite vast in the types of communications that are shared the period of time it takes to respond to things so in in my book I think that is an area that is really in need of some um challenging thinking <laughs> um, and really just thinking about it as another area of fundraising which I know is quite controversial with quite a few charities who don't see it like that and I, I get where they're coming from it's just where what I what I think I think that's a great point and actually I think there's in many ways there's, there's innovation that's needed in the language that we use because we call it legacy administration which yeah. makes it sound like it's it's process. It's all about, you know, the, the and there is lots of practical process involved and there's lots of important steps that we have to take and due diligence and all of that. But actually, you know, I think if we looked at it from a different angle, legacy administration is, is actually an essential part of the stewardship process. It's about saying thank, thank you to the family, members, friends, people yeah. you know on behalf of that donor who'd made that decision who left left that gift because they wanted to do something and we're kind of you know we're stewarding that gift and we've got a responsibility to play and you know we know if we do that well you know we can create positive relationships going into the future um i will i will say actually it's an area that legacy foresight are actually just looking into at the minute there's a there's a new ongoing yeah. um, research program that, that's just been started about looking into how to communicate better with lay executors because we know um, like family members who undertake um, the executorship they're different they've got different needs and you know it's important that charities um, understand that and know how to communicate more effectively so I think that's a really good point yeah um, yeah sorry I was just going to say that we actually signed up to that um, that uh, project because what we've encountered uh, is that communications can be a little bit too uh, blunt and legal, legalesque. 
mm-hmm. especially to those that are recently grieving. So I think there's a massive opportunity there and one that not necessarily, um, I haven't necessarily seen being done particularly brilliantly yet. So I think that's a key area. Um, I think that in terms of audiences, there's still a lot of work to be done around solicitors and communicating with solicitors and what that looks like. I have, I'm really not sure at this stage because I know so much has tried to happen, but we haven't, we haven't seen enough of a change in the behaviors and the mindsets to say that we, we've made enough of an impact, I think. So I'd really like to see, and we're working on it in our own way at ARUK, but I'd really like to see as a sector us doing a little bit more in that. Mm. That's a really interesting point, actually, George, because um, on your point in terms of solicitors and how we work with them, um, we at Remember a Charity, we found that a lot of the misconceptions that exist amongst the general population around gifts and wills that we're all aware of, so, you know, for example, um, that everything should go to family and friends or that um, gifts and wills are only people without children, for example, those misconceptions often exist amongst solicitors as well, which means that they are not raising the option of charity with their clients because they think that it's not right for the client, even though it's actually not their decision. In the client's best interest, they should understand all their options. So at Remember Charity, what we're trying to do is, is myth bust amongst the legal profession as well as consumers because because yeah, I think that's one of the main barriers that, that solicitors feel like it's not their place because they've already made up their mind on behalf of their client, which is a bit frustrating. So yeah, excellent point. Michael, anything to add? No, I mean, I agree. I think there was an interesting report that came out um, from Pennington Manchester a few years ago where they worked with the legal profession to say what's the relationship like between um, those solicitors who are working in probate administration dealing with uh, charity beneficiaries and what do the charity beneficiaries think on the other half? There's a great deal of work that still needs to go on there. without a doubt. I I think um, we as a sector are getting more qualified people in to deal with legacy administration, which is fantastic. And I think that the um, solicitors profession and the will writing profession need to understand that and the reasons why we do it. You know, I would always say that a good legacy administrator pays their own wage in checking um, and finding gaps in where inheritance taxes due that's not being calculated etc so I think that's vital and I think those two sectors need to work a lot closely together um, going forward I think the other thing that just when you talk about legacy fundraising and innovation is just a couple of things one is the stewardship of supporters generally I think that legacy still to some degree sits aside from other areas of fundraising and it just needs to be you know integrated amongst the whole of your fundraising whether people are doing challenge events or they're paying you know 10 pound a month on a direct debit etc and we just really need to understand those people a bit better you know there's uh, dm is a fantastic medium for contacting our supporters but the better we know our supporters the better we know their situation their financial situation, their reason why they support, who they support in memory or in honour of, 
um, and the better we can look after them and make sure actually we understand what their wishes are and the better we can um, deal with their legacy requirements before and after their death. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of audiences, do you think, or do any of you think that there is there is room for, for us to rethink the audiences that, that we're all aiming at with legacy marketing? I think, broadly speaking, most charities aim at 55 plus ABC ones. Um, there's often some discussion and debate around whether we should be aiming younger than that. Um, what do you guys think of that? I, I think everybody is a potential legacy pledger. We mm. make generalizations based on people. As somebody who is 40 on Monday, <laughs> let me just mention that I am 40. Ashley, I know you said we'd sing for you, you, didn't we, Michael? You thought I was 60. <laughs> as, as somebody who is 40 on Monday, who supports a number of charities, who is um, not affluent, but okay <laughs> as no wife and no children nobody has ever contacted me about leaving a legacy my own father died at 58 um i have a family condition of heart disease and no one's ever contacted me because everyone works on the basis of uh the principles set through research that on average we live to be 80 and we'll contact you at 50, then you'll write your last will and then we'll steward you through. Yeah. But the problem is with averages, that it is an average and there's people one side and there's people the other side. Yeah. What, what we've got to focus on, I think, is impact of what our charity is doing. Get mm -hmm. them involved early, keep them and steward them. Get as much money out of them during their lifetime as you possibly can show them what that's achieving and get as much money out of them at their death as you can and showcase to them before their death what that will help to achieve. I would agree with you there, Michael, but can I just say, so it's also down to individual strategies that legacy teams come up with. There are a couple of charities that do very much aim at a younger audience and, I, and I've received their adverts on Facebook and they are aimed at me because they are younger people and I'm still in my 30s, so I can say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and they're pictures of them getting married or walking around um, looking a lot, you know, their imagery that is a lot younger. So I, I, I do see that. But um, in terms of the, you know, the individual strategy of the charity is is what drives what audiences you're going to go to. And for, for us, I would never pull um, advertising to, I would never create advertising, excuse me, to a younger audience just because of the cost to retain those supporters. And for me, I think the, how I've got it across in my organization is actually our legacies at the end of it are a KPI of how well we as an organization do at recruiting, motivating, engaging, and driving supporters in their lifetime to the point of be, being a legacy mm. pledger. And yeah. it, it's about really harnessing the spend and putting it where it's, it's going to have the most impact for me personally. And so that's, that's where it is. So um, our other 
fundraising teams that focus at a younger audience, they all have KPIs now at ARUK in order to talk about gifts and wills. Mm. Um, yeah. And that's how we're hitting the younger audience, but we're not taking them on a journey yet. And I'm not actively going out there advertising to them on Facebook or Instagram or, you know, TikTok, TikTok, <laughs> <laughs> which I've only recently learned about, believe it or not. Uh, but I, I, I agree with you, George. I think there is a difference. And I, agree with what you say there is a difference between where you spend your uh, budget in terms of acquisition for potential legacy pledges against creating that whole legacy journey which when someone joins uh, World Cancer Research Fund and they say you know I want to support your cause I'm interested in what you're doing what you've done and what you're going to be doing I want to start taking them on that legacy journey the amount that I want to spend on them in terms of um, getting them into legacy uh, pledger territory is less than those people who are aged over 50 for obvious financial reasons. I, I just, I suppose from my point of view, it's making sure that when they turn 50 and they've been on your database for 20 years and they've been receiving the calls and they've been receiving the direct mail packs, that it's not suddenly something that's new. Actually, we expect this you know, this is something that has been drip fed to us for a number of years. We've been pleased to donate regularly. We've been pleased to donate your appeals. And now is the time to think about what might be our second or third or possibly our final will. And actually, we want to make sure that the uh, people that we love, our family and friends, are protected first, which is always right. But also those causes that we also care about have given us sufficient information about their future impact that we also want to give them a gift in our will. Yeah, well said. <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. I think this you can look at the age thing on a number of ways, can't you? I mean, we, we know that people make wills right throughout their life. You know, there's lots of there's lots of consistent research that says, you know, people tend to make their first will approaching, you know, Michael's age, late 30s, early 40s. We know that people make their wills, you know, will make another will as they're approaching retirement. We know that people will make another will as they're approaching the end of their life. So, you know, people can people can make wills and they can leave gifts and they do include gifts to charity throughout the whole of that. So I think there's on the one hand, Totally. You could, you know, realistically, we could be sharing our legacy messages with with a whole wide range of ages. I think I'd say, though, that people have, have, think very differently at, at different life stages and like their will has a very different meaning at different life stages. Michael's will is going to be an insurance product like like mine is, you know, it's there in the event of if the worst were to happen, it's there, it's going to fall back on. But do you know what? I really hope that that will never ever gets used. I'm going to change that in the future. And my life's going to have moved on. I'm going to have been impacted by different causes. Mm. I'm, and I think that's the risk of reaching young audiences is that realistically, there will be other things that will become more important to them later in life. And that gift can be taken out. And we've got to think, you know, we're, we're investing charitable resources when we spend money on legacy marketing that's money that's been donated it could have been used to go towards you know the the, the actual charitable objectives we've, we've decided to take that and reinvest it because we think we hope we can raise more I think we, we've got to, we've got to think really really carefully about potentially spending money on people at a too young age 
But I agree with, with Michael, there's ways that we can integrate legacy messaging actually really simply. You know, let's just make, make it easy, make it an option. It doesn't actually necessarily have to cost a lot of money. To, but that whole journey approach that Michael said is, is absolutely the way to go. And so then I think you can and you should be reaching all audiences at all ages. And But, you know, Ashley, I, I tell you the thing I would honestly say, the, the way, it, and in terms of, I suppose, innovation that we're speaking about as well, the way I think legacy fundraising should go is down the similar lines to major donor fundraising. Get to know your people as well as you can in terms of your decent prospects, in terms of people who really care and have got capacity to give. Because I completely agree um, that we should look at, you know, the people 50, 55, over, etc. But the better that we steward supporters and know them and know their situation, their family situation, their wealth situation, their health situation, their desires, that's the most important thing, their desire situation. What do they want their legacy to actually impact and how will it impact? The better we can understand them on a one-to-one -one basis, the better. What, what I'm scared of um, in this sector as far as we're getting away from innovation is we're putting everyone in this pool and saying oh here's a nice segment of people who are 55 and over and they've been supporting us for 10 years on a regular gift they're all individual people some of them are married some of them have got estates worth 500,000 pounds some of them have got next to nothing some of them have got family friends and loved ones some of them haven't some of them are deeply rooted to our cause and I think that stewardship just plays such an essential role in getting to know people the best we can. I'll always tell a story that, you know, if you work in a charity and somebody gives a major gift of £20,000, you know, if you work in a decent charity, they open a bottle of champagne and everyone jumps up and down. When was the last time anyone did that in a charity when they received a £20,000 legacy gifting? It's exactly the same thing. If we know these people better to begin with, we can know what stewardship journey and what support journey we should put them on. So are you talking about segmenting uh, your, your audience, essentially? Do, do you know what I'm talking about? People run up and down and they say, oh, I've got 20, I've got 2000 new legacy pledges. Fantastic. OK, are they have they pledged a pound each and it's going to cost you? 500 pound to administer their estate. Do you want 200 people who leave a pound? So I come to you as my boss and say, I've got 200 new legacy pledges. I've done really well. Or do you want me to say, I've got a million pound pledger who's 85? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's a really good point. I think the whole, the whole aspect of um, high value legacy gifts or major legacy gifts, I think is an area that I don't think is, that well understood or really that well explored. I think, you know, I think we've been for the for the last however long, we've been so focused about wanting to make legacy giving the norm, make it easy, you know, uh, whatever size gift, it's all right. Um, you know, just 1%, all of those kind of messages, which I'm, I'm not knocking. But actually, when we look at the value of legacy giving income, over a third of all income comes from the top, top two um, percent of 
legacy gifts. So high value legacy gifts of over £200,000 contribute the vast majority of, of legacy income. And actually, I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be normalising legacy giving. Of course, we should. But actually, we probably then miss the bigger opportunity of, you know, there's a there's a growing concentration of wealth in the country. We know that there's a certain proportion of our population that did really, really well out of the pandemic. You know, lots of millionaires have been made. Actually, people want to make truly transformational gifts. You know, when people leave a gift in there with the world, they want to do something big. They want to do something that they could never have done in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. And actually, should we, could we be innovating that in that area to actually have more, um, you know, like kind of major donor type approach with with a certain few people who potentially could could deliver quite transformational gifts. Nick, I, I agree with what you're saying and what Michael's been saying as well. But I think there is that that key word is collaboration. So most of our charities have a major donor team and most of them have a corporate fundraising team. We should be working with them to help identify those people that they have built up relationships with already. So we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We don't need to go back out there and you know, create a new relationship with them because they'll be taking them on that journey. And part of you know, all of our roles as a fundraiser in a charity is to ensure that we maximize income to the cause. And so that, it, that includes cross-selling you know, a challenge event or a regular gift, as well as legacy giving. So in my book, collaboration is, is, the, answer to, is the answer to this. And it is what we've been doing at AI UK now for a good, only for a couple of years, and it's still new. But for us, it's a very innovative way of working because all of our fundraising teams and our communication team have KPIs for gifts and wills, conversations and mentions. So it it drives that that way of working. But I, yeah, I think we've we've also got to recognize that we can't just recruit a million different um, people to work in the offices to then go out and have these one-on-one conversations, but actually what is the most efficient and effective way of driving this forward? And we've been seeing that going on for quite some time yeah. in this way of working. Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean, George. I think there is a there's a practicality element to this, which is that um, if Legacies is integrated across the whole organisation, which is my job ultimately at World Cancer Research Fund and, and George's as well, and we work with major donor teams and we work with the committed giving teams, etc., that message has got to get through to everyone. And what we've got to understand about innovation is it's not about sitting back and sharing with your director your free will results, Um, not by any means. My personal experience and Legacy Foresight, I'm scared to say this in front of you, Ashley, but Legacy Foresight will share fantastic detail, all of which I complete, I, you know, I take Meg's name off the bottom of it and I put my name on and I present it to the trustees. I'll never um, veer away from that. In my experience over the last 15 years, the people who die leaving five million pound leave a thousand pound to us and the people who die leaving six hundred thousand pound leave six hundred thousand pound to us. We've got a we've got an innovation to change that 
But what I fear is that a lot of legacy fundraisers think, oh, I've got this number of new pledges and I've got this value of pledge. What we've got to make sure of is that we can show future impact. Ashley said in a presentation years ago, we're not free will salesmen. I agree with that. I think a free wills offering is vital into our legacy marketing. But we've got to show what we are doing now, what we've done in the past, what we've achieved over the time and what we're going to achieve over the next 30 to 50 years, as long as people continue to support us in this way. If I leave a legacy of a thousand pound to Ashley and I die tomorrow, I don't want to hear that he has put it in his bank and not spent it. If I hear from heaven that he has spent it on having a lovely holiday with his family, I think that's a thousand pound well given. I'm going to put it in if a really low interest savings account, maybe investment bonds. I wouldn't leave you a penny, Ashley. You don't need to worry. It's a hypothetical <laughs> statement in the course of this podcast. But you know the point that I am making. Yeah. Whatever anybody gives, when they go to a solicitor's and they say, I want to include this charity in my will, that is an absolutely amazing act. And it is underrepresented in the charity sector and in charities. Yeah. When you sit back and you think about your estate, it doesn't matter if you're worth a hundred pound or a hundred million pound. Who you decide to leave that to is an incredible act, and it's something that we've all got to think about very, very carefully. And every single time, even after fifteen years, when I read a will and I see the charity that I represent's name in there, I just think that is amazing. What's their story behind it? And in terms of legacy administration, and one of the reasons why legacy marketing and legacy administration simply must sit together. And if anyone's doing legacy administration and it sits in the finance team, you're 20 years out of date and sort it out because it's it's just rubbish. Right? So there's Michael's top to tip. Sit, <laughs> you've got to sit together. The legacy supporter journey starts at the time that person starts supporting your cause in their mind, not necessarily on your database, until the time that the legacy administration file has closed. We must remember that. Yeah, that's a really sensational. <laughs> um, I'm very conscious of time. So I'm just going to move on to the next question, which actually comes back to something you were saying earlier, George. So at Alzheimer's Research, obviously you're a, a larger charity um, and you obviously invest a lot in legacy fundraising, but um, could you just share some examples of how you've been in, innovative in the past or if you have any future plans, um, do you have anything that you can share with listeners? <laughs> um, well, I, I don't have anything coming up that I can share just yet. But um, I think, you know, we actually don't have a very large legacy marketing budget, believe it or not, um, which proves to be a challenge on its own. So we have to be quite innovative with how we spend it. Um, but from the very beginning, I think we have, you know, for, I've been there for almost six years. And from throughout that time, we've been, my team and I have been challenging the status quo, which is what I think innovation essentially really is, um, whether it be big things or small so even starting with moving so we restructured the legacy admin side to move into my remit so that we had marketing and admin working side by side part of marketing's role is to review the admin template letters on an annual basis 
to ensure that that information about ARUK and the tone is in line with the rest of our materials that go out so that they're seeing it and it is in line. And they also work closely with our administration team to help soften some of those communications when they can be unnecessarily um, formal to some of those lay executives where different relationships have been developed. Um, and then all the way through to bigger products, for example, our value exchange product, which we launched, um, oh God, I think it was in 2020, uh, which was quite a struggle of its own really. Um, but that was an insights-based marketing product that was developed to meet the needs of the audiences that we wanted to attract whilst also making it appropriate to our cause. So it was, a, it was a, the, the normal planning for the future pack, but it was aimed at people that were affected by dementia. So those that have a loved one that has um, dementia and just that planning for the future information. Um, and then on the back of that was a, well, we have a robust supporter journey that just ensures that those people that have ordered that pack, not only are they getting what we believe the insight that we've undertaken asks or gets to them, um, but the, the supporter journey then takes them on through from a very cold product to actually wanting to find out more about leaving an actual gift in their will to the charity. So we, we've been really fortunate in driving quite high engagement and our opt-in percentages have been increasing ever since we launched it, which has been really good to see and um, the feedback that we've been receiving has been really positive and then I think in terms of you know internal innovation it is that getting internal buy-in and recognition of legacies so um, actually we had conversations before COVID about uh, legacy KPIs for fundraising and communications and it was um, some of the teams actually had them before COVID and then COVID hit and then the charity realized just the impact of legacy giving and how it was really providing a bit of a life source to our organization when everything else stopped, um, like many places. So that's how we, we got to be one of the strategic objectives within the organization and drove that forward. And that, that, you know, they're not massive, ginormous change the way we market legacies or the way we, you know, we do all of that. But for our organizations, they were, they were big changes and actually quite innovative because nobody else in our organization has thought about cross-selling um, within different teams and having different KPIs of having, you know, an area of fundraising as a strategic priority. Um, so, yeah. That's pretty much how we've done it. I think it just shows how broad it is. Absolutely. I think I think your point around collaboration between teams within a charity and cross-selling, that's something that can apply to, to every charity, regardless of size. So I think that's a really good, really good tip. And um, Michael, vice versa, um, what does it look like? What does innovation look like for, for a smaller charity, um, in your opinion? I, do you know, Lucinda, I, so uh, World Cancer Research Fund, our turnover is circa 10 million, 20% um, of that is legacy income. I don't think it looks massively different. It, it does on paper in terms of we're not going to be doing any um, DRTV ads. Okay, <laughs> of course we're not. It still looks like integration. What, what it looks like is, and it, 
it's an interesting point. You'll very often see on um, the the SIG emails um, that we receive through from different legacy marketers. People will say, please, will you share your legacy marketing strategy with me? Yeah. And it's like, from my personal experience, let me tell you that when I when I I have had a sensational career, it's probably going to end quite soon after this podcast, but never mind. But I've had a sensational career working in legacies. Now, when I joined Cystic Vibrosis in 2013, 80% of their income came from traditional grassroots fundraising, community and events fundraising, because that's the way it was formed, a cluster of parents of children with cystic fibrosis. Okay, no legacy marketing. I've joined World Cancer Research Fund. Re, uh, Sarah Rebus, Judy Anderson before have done a great job in terms of legacies. A lot of our income, our main uh, port of call of income comes from direct marketing. There is not a legacy marketing strategy that fits all. There are certain rules that fit all. Mm-hmm. Integration across teams, etc. Don't Don't go out and ask for, can I have your legacy marketing strategy? Look at your... How do people choose to support you? Who are your people? What age are they? What do they do? How do they want to support you? How do they support you? How would they want to support you? What are their beliefs? What's their motivation? What's their sensitivity towards your course? Look at your people. I, I just fear a little bit that the people who strive away from innovation say, oh, here we go. There's a legacy page on our website and we've got a free wills offering. Fantastic. There we go. That's not innovation. Look at your people, segment your data, look at how people choose to support who they are. What is the right supporter journey for those people to get them onto the legacy message? One legacy market, if you had a legacy marketing strategy for one charity, it wouldn't be right for another. It might be close. It might need a little bit of adaptation. But you've actually got to get into that detail. Look at your supporters, look at your cause, look at their motivation for support. One size definitely does not fit all. Yeah, yeah. Irrespective of size. Yeah. I might just disagree slightly, if I may, with Michael on that. Only from the point. Let's move on, Lucinda. Have you got any more questions? (laughs) Only from the point of view, if you're a small charity, if you're just starting out, if you've never done anything, you know, innovation to you doesn't have to be groundbreaking. It doesn't yeah. have to be brand new to the sector. If it's new for you, then that's innovation. So I think the, the biggest barrier to, you know, to you growing your legacy income is, is silence. You, you don't do anything. You're waiting, you know, that we can let kind of perfection be the enemy of the good. And, and actually when innovating, you know, failure is okay. We might not always get it right. You're better off doing something and, and doing it quickly and learning from it and so but, but so I think be informed Ashley to, to we be can be and we, we can be people to be informed and and I'm not saying that they shouldn't go ahead and do that what I'm saying is that a small charity who's completely new to legacy fundraising shouldn't go out and ask 800 people for their legacy marketing strategy and then say to their chief exec I've got a free wills um leaflet and i'm going to hand it to everyone who walks around our animal farm charity and i'm going to provide a free will offering to everyone who comes around who are the people who are walking around how many times have they walked around have you asked them to donate are they donating get to know them better at what point in that journey are you going to say to them 
These are the ways that you can support us. You've got to know your audience. You've got to know your charity. I don't think the same legacy marketing strategy is true of any two organisations. No. George, is that, um, George, can you raise your hand? Do you want to jump in? Yeah, I just wanted to say, um, just, I just thought I would take two seconds out of, uh, between Ashley and Michael, um, that I, I agree that no two legacy marketing strategies will be the same. They have to be different. They're different things to take into account. And yes, sharing your strategy across all places is it's just not good it's not it's not good to do that we don't want to encourage any more um sheep following than we've already got because innovation is about not following the sheep in front of you um but also innovation is different like it doesn't come in one shape or size it's not one grand thing that's going to change the way that you know the sector does legacy marketing or it's not going to change the way um a campaign you know, isn't going to change everything. And a perfect example, actually, I was looking on the Legacy Futures Awards uh, before we did this podcast. Um, <laughs> you crazy. <laughs> I know. I was looking at the innovation section just to try and uh, get my head in the innovation game. And I saw the winners last year were Bransby Horses. That's right, what, yes. Yeah. They didn't change the way legacy fundraising is done for the whole sector. But what they've done is they've looked inside their charity and at their supporters and their supporter base and actually worked out using that insight what would work for that audience. That is, for me, the perfect example of real innovation because it can't be what we do at AIUK is not going to work for WCRF. They're, they're, we're, we're different charities. And I'm actually going to get in trouble by brand for saying AIUK. It's Alzheimer's Research UK. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> i try and edit that for you, George. <laughs> oh, no, I do, I do agree with that. I think there's, there's so much copycatting that goes on. I mean, it, and it's always been the case. If I kind of think back to when I started um, in a legacy role kind of a, lo- a while ago, you know, there was so much copycatting. At that point, it was everyone had to advertise in the legal sector because everyone did it and no one really knew why they were doing it. Maybe it made sense in the 1980s when the yellow pages were a thing. <laughs> but, you know, and, and, and today, maybe that the that's something new. It's something different. I do, I do agree that, you know, we want to get going. We, the easy thing to do is to say, let's do what they're doing. But actually, we've got to engage our brains and think, why are we doing this? Why is this right for us to do it? Just because it works for, you know, this other charity doesn't mean it, it works for us. I think getting in, getting inspiration ideas is helpful though. Like if you, um, people might know of um, sophie.org, S-O-F-I-I.org. There's a whole area there on fundraising innovation. There's lots of great examples and ideas from, from legacies. And that's great. You know, let's get in, let's get inspiration and ideas, but definitely we need to apply it to our own individual charities. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and also Michael has been knocked, slightly might have knocked our um, IOF special interest group, but I would say that the you know on the whole the conversations there are about sharing ideas and knowledge and insights to help legacy fundraisers across the board just think more innovatively, and then taking it back to their charity and their cause and working out what does you know what will resonate, what won't resonate. How can they challenge what's going on with them? And yeah. then moving that forward. Yeah, I think um, uh, thinking back to the Innovation Award, I think as, as a judge, think, I think following this conversation, I think 
one of the things that I'd be looking for is, is think, as George said, challenging the status quo, looking at what your charity does and thinking, well, actually, let's try something new and not being afraid of failing. I think trying things and, yeah, not just doing the same thing just for the sake of it because it's always been done, but, but yeah, trying new things, not being afraid to fail and, and really thinking about what using insights from your organization, your charity, and it could be something tiny. It doesn't need to be groundbreaking as we keep saying the word innovation, I think sounds so big and daunting. Um, so yeah, I think that that's, those are the sorts of things that I think are, should be thought about. If, if you're thinking of uh, entering the awards, that would be something I'd be looking for. Um, conscious of time still, I think we've got so much to talk about in this area, probably only got a few minutes left. So the last question, um, and I will ask you to try and keep your answers as brief as possible. <laughs> um, so what do you think the future of legacy holds? Um, I will go to Michael first and yeah, um, yeah, as short as possible. <laughs> I, do you know me? I'm rarely okay, I'm asking the wrong I rarely say a word, <laughs> Lucinda. I'm a very quietly spoken middle-aged gentleman these days. I, I you know, I'm not going to go into Ashley's hoo-ha about, you know, the biggest transformation of wealth, although that's um, you know, th that that's completely true. We're at the end of the baby boomers. We're at a point where when I started in legacy fundraising, you didn't have any DRTV. Now, you know, when I turn on to Classic Coronation Street and edit this out in case it goes to World Cancer Research Fund, but I'm a big fan of Classic Coronation Street that's shown 10 to 3 till 10 to 4, two episodes every weekday. And in between those, because they're looking at a more mature female audience, it's full of legacy DRTV. It's lovely to see it's lovely to see how it's been normalized it's been normalized by charities upping their game by the work of remember a charity and i think that's fantastic and i think we're going to see the benefits of it for years to come the more it's just that normalization how can you support our charity you can have a bucket collection you can do a tabletop sale you can give a one-off gift you can give a regular gift you can consider a gift in your will it should be as normal as that as yeah. simple as that part of the conversation cool thank you michael that was very succinct for you <laughs> and george what do you think the future of legacy fundraising holds well i think it's very bright um i think uh, one of the biggest barriers was around will writing and planning for the future even though it's not something we ever want to talk about or think about but covid kind of pushed that along and, and brought it into audiences awareness um, from any age actually, not just um, the older age brackets. So I think, um, I don't think necessarily our biggest challenge is going to be around barriers to will writing. I think it's going to be getting that cut through. I think there, the, the marketplace has gotten so much more competitive. Mm -hmm. And so it will be charities really getting cut through a bit like um the direct marketing side has been for the last 15-ish years so i think i'm seeing legacy fundraising going a bit more down that's you know um standout route um yeah i i think that's pretty much where it is and hopefully getting our um everything in order with our legacy administration side too and maybe changing it from legacy administration to legacy fundraisers. Yes, I agree, actually. I think the word administration 
does that team a disservice because it sounds a bit dry and not very skilled when in fact it's actually probably one of the most vital elements of of legacy fundraising and those teams are are so important and yeah I think maybe we need to relook at how we frame that entire team and how we talk about it and the language around it yeah I'd be on board with that renaming it (laughs) (laughs) Ashley what about you I think you know the future is really exciting like Michael said we've we've got a new new generation of of donors coming through there they're very charitably minded um they're very wealthy they want to give to chat to give to charities in their wills you know they're giving to new causes we're seeing real growth in in areas that we hadn't seen before we're seeing you know small charities getting legacies for the first time um that's all exciting we've got new like technologies helping us to reach audiences in in new ways digital is a fantastic opportunity I think there's still some major innovations that are, that are needed that are maybe outside of our control. If we think about the Wills Act is coming on for 200 years old, it's never really been changed, despite the fact that, you know, society has radically changed, family structure, you know, technology, everything. And until we see some real innovation there, you know, so we can't truly, for example, make a truly digital will, we still have to have wills printed and signed, um, witnessed, for example. But, you know, imagine if, if we saw some innovations in there, it would make it quite exciting. Video messages, um, connecting wills up to the blockchain, all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, but I, so I think, I think it's exciting. I think we're at a, at a point in time where we're seeing a real shift. There's lots of things changing. You know, legacies have been very consistent for a long time, but we're seeing you know, that, that really open out. And I think it's a, an exciting time to be, working in the sector as a legacy fundraiser brilliant thank you i think to, to your point around um sort of digital side and, and you mentioned videos i think something that's really exciting is is the thought of a will becoming a message to your loved ones because your will and leaving a gift to charity is a reflection of your values imagine being able to just include a, a video to loved ones to explain why you've chosen to leave gifts to a particular charity or a cause, why you've chosen to leave, I don't know, particular sentimental items to certain people. I think something like that would make it so much more of a wonderful product almost. It's not just a dry, bland piece of paper. Yeah, it's absolutely. Bland. And wills always have been. If you, if, mm. I know if Claire Outley would here, she'd tell us all about the, the history and that, things. But, you know, traditionally, hundreds of years ago, you know, wills would always have a big preamble in it. It'd be telling them, telling the world really about who they were and what was important to them. And then over time, we've kind of distilled them down into really factual legal documents. Um, whereas, yeah, it gives all, you know, there's loads of opportunity to do that and bring the kind of richness into who we are as a person, you know, the life we've lived, the things that are important to us and the, I guess the future that we want to create with, with the gifts that we're passing on. Absolutely. Um, and on that note, I think it's probably time I let you get all back to your back to your day jobs. Um, thank you, all three of you, for your time and your expertise. There's been some great discussion, debate, and um, and many mentions of how old Michael is. <laughs> um, so yeah, I hope it's been a really interesting and useful listen uh, to everyone listening. And um, if anyone has any further questions about anything we've spoken about, any questions for any of the guests, please do email us at info at and I can pass your questions on. 
Um, and as always, if there are any particular topics you'd like us to cover in the future, um, any ideas or things you want us to discuss or have uh, minor arguments about, <laughs> uh, please do let us know um, because we always want to make sure the podcast is, is what everyone wants to listen to. Um, thank you everyone again for listening and goodbye.